If you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, we, are, we are coming down the, the, the final stretch in our study of this letter. And in chapter 14, we get to the sort of final stages of one of the, one of the main sections in the letter where Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. And mainly what he's trying to do is sort of reframe how this community he's writing this letter to think about their gifts. He's trying to challenge them not to see these things as sort of bragging rights material, but to see these gifts as ultimately about the Spirit who gives them and about the community that the Spirit gives them to serve. And what we've been building to, and what I've been sort of pushing off every time it's come up, I've been saying, wait, we're going to get to it, we're going to get to it, are the specific gifts that they seem to have been most proud of and seem to have been abusing in their gatherings together. And those gifts are primarily the gift of tongues, but then also the gift of prophecy. Those are the two gifts that Paul is really interested in communicating about from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 14. And chapter 14 is where the rubber meets the road. That's where we are today. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend more time than I normally would setting this up to make sure we understand what's going on here. But before I even get there, I want to read the passage together. And we're going to read the whole thing. It's 40 verses. So I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read and to engage as we read a long section. Let's read it carefully together so, we'll, so we will uh, be able to understand it more clearly when we get into it later. This is the Word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as a flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue, your utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I don't know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. 
Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it's written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all and called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged and the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, I said earlier, I want to spend more time than I normally would setting this up uh, because there's a lot going on here and we've decided to take it all at once. Um, so I feel like we need to make some sort of sweeping statements about what's going on in the whole chapter before we get into the details of them. I also want to make one more qualification. Towards the end of the chapter here, we read a section that's probably jumping off the page at you about women and their participation in church meetings. I want to remind you that we talked about that section of chapter 14 a few weeks back because it dovetailed nicely with another section on women in the church in in chapter 11. And knowing that we were going to take all of 14 in one fell swoop, we knew we wouldn't be able to give the attention to this particular section that we'd want to in this sermon. So if you're interested in that part, go listen on the website. The sermon from chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians is on the website. And I'll also talk about chapter 14. Um, So go listen to it there, and I'd be happy to talk to you about what you hear. Now, for now, I think we need to answer a couple of questions or at least address them, raise them, and then sort of, sort of address them before we get into the nitty-gritty of this chapter. And those questions go hand-in-hand. Hand. They can't really be answered in isolation, I don't think. They are this. What are these gifts of tongues and prophecy, and are these gifts still around today? What are these gifts, and are these gifts still around, still in use still given by the Spirit today? I mentioned that those two questions, I think, can't be answered on their own because whether they're still active today depends in part on how you define what these gifts are. Um, For example, 
if the gift of prophecy is similar to what it was in the Old Testament, where it's a person who speaks literally the words of God, the the pure, infallible, perfect words of God that must be obeyed by everyone who hears them. Then the church from the beginning has said that that kind of gift can't still be here after after the, the, the scriptures are in place. Because there are references in the scriptures to the foundation that's laid by the apostles and the prophets. That once the foundation is laid, there's no more laying foundation. You build on it, but you don't lay it. So we can't expect the authority of the scriptures to be coming to us from an individual in this church. And it would be inappropriate for one of us to hear a word from another person in our church and say, yeah, that is God's word. It's perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. I must submit to it. There's a lot of danger in assuming that God continues to speak with the same authority that he spoke in the prophets of the Old Testament, in the writings that have been identified by the church as, as part of Scripture. So prophecy, whether or not it's still around, depends in part on how you define it. There are basically two ways of defining it among evangelicals. One is that it's, it is the same thing as what's going on in the Old Testament, and that therefore it's not around anymore. That it's part of the foundation that was laid. It was active in the New Testament era. They didn't have the New Testament writings like we do. So the the communication about Christ and why he was significant wasn't uh, available to them in the way that it is to us. So the prophecy was necessary. And there were prophets in each of the local churches to communicate on behalf of God. That's one way of understanding prophecy. The second way, the way that that is more convincing to me is that prophecy in the New Testament was a different sort of thing from what it was in the Old Testament. I think one of the things that points us in this direction is what we read in chapter 14. He says when the prophets speak, you should weigh what's said. It's the job of the, the community to hear what's said and then to decide whether or not it's appropriate, whether or not it's, you know, trustworthy. And I can't imagine that being the case in the Old Testament, right? When Isaiah is prophesying, no one's weighing what's said. They, they hear, thus says the Lord, and they obey or they don't, and their fate hinges on that decision. But no one's weighing it. Nothing, th- th- this, is, this seems to assume that what's happening in prophecy is something that could be true or not true. Similarly for tongues. If tongue speaking, is, is tongue speaking um, the same thing in chapter 14 that it is in Acts chapter 2. That's the story of Peter preaching this powerful sermon um, at, on, on what's called the day of Pentecost. And, and what happens is that the Spirit comes on the apostles at that time and gives them the ability to speak languages they didn't... <laughs> Excuse me. Gives them the ability to speak languages they didn't understand. So they're talking and people from all over, the, all over that part of the world are there speaking all sorts of different languages and they're hearing their own language spoken by the prophets or by the apostles. Is that what the tongue speaking is in chapter 14? If so, maybe it's still around, maybe it isn't. We don't really often hear people talking about that sort of tongues these days. Usually if, if tongues is something you're into, it isn't speaking the intelligible language of you know, a German guy or a Chinese person. It's talking about something that isn't an actual human language. So is tongues the thing that happened in Acts 2, or is tongues something else altogether, something mysterious, something unintelligible to anyone, maybe a language of the angels or something like that, but not, but not an actual human language? I think it's tough to know. I think there are some, some good arguments on both sides, and I kind of just hover in the middle somewhere. Um, if tongue speaking is, is 
is something beyond just human languages in, in this chapter, in chapter 14. And the question is, like, what role does it play in the life of the church? Should it be something that's still active in the church's life today? What, what, was, what was its function then, and, and therefore what could its function be today? One of the arguments about its function then is that perhaps in this really pivotal time where the church is getting founded, where it's getting established, there were more miraculous signs on hand at that time to sort of confirm the work that the apostles were doing. There's definitely examples of that in the Old Testament where God is doing something special. A lot of times there's extra or, extraordinary, obvious evidence that he's at work and there's miracles happening. Um, you, you see this in several cases in the Old Testament. And, and I think it's a good argument about what's going on in the New Testament that you've got these miraculous gifts of healing and tongue speaking and prophecy that are just about helping to establish and legitimize the church as it's in its early days, to give evidence that what the apostles were saying was true. Maybe that's what it was. I don't know. I mean, here's, here, here, let me just make it simple for you. This is, maybe it will frustrate you. Uh, it kind of frustrates me. I, I, I really don't know what I think about this issue. I'm just kind of cautiously open-minded. I feel like I don't see enough clear evidence that the gifts of tongues in prophecy that are talked about in chapter 14, I don't see enough evidence in the Bible anywhere that these gifts have gone away. I don't see like a smoking gun that says, you know, once this happens, they're done. Chapter 13 does say that prophecy and tongues and knowledge will pass away when the perfect comes. But there are several, there are several parts to that section that make it, make it clear to me that he's talking about when Christ comes again, when we see him face to face and not through an intermediary, not through a mirror. That's when they'll stop. So it's not, it's not really an open and shut case out of that text. I just don't see enough anywhere in the New Testament to settle the issue. But then on the other hand, I also struggle to see what the value would be of these particular gifts today, depending on how they're defined. I can see the value of, if, if we want to define prophecy so loosely that it just means applying words truth from God into specific life circumstances in the church. And I think we do that all the time, that we're called to that. That's one of our basic callings to each other, to take what's been said and drive it into something specific that's happening in our lives. And if, that's, if, if, if this is a reference to a sort of gift of prophecy that, that is a special ability the Spirit gives you to do that really well, gives you great insight into what's going on in people's lives, then, then I certainly, I think absolutely that's still going on. I benefit from it regularly from friends in our church. Uh, but I don't know that we have enough evidence to know that's what prophecy is in chapter 14. If it's more than that, I can't imagine what it would be useful for. And it's hard for me not to, not to lock in only on the potential for abuse of somebody coming to you and saying, here's what God wants from you. I think anytime you've got that happening, then you've automatically gone too far. You've gone beyond what the New Testament allows seems like that's exactly the kind of behavior that Paul's trying to call into question here in, in his letter. People claiming that they have these permanent possessions, these gifts or these, these rights that they can use and, and that they can use to obligate you. He's trying to hold them back from that and say it's about love. It's not about what you've got or what, you've, what you're entitled to from other people. What I do know, for all the sort of open-minded, cautious for that landing place for me. Despite that, what I do know is that I don't think we're in danger of missing any of God's good gifts to us. I think God's gifts, these gifts come from him. 
They aren't based on our fitness. They aren't based on our ability to understand him and what he's up to. And he gives his churches what they need to be healthy. So I think our response to passages like this one, when we're not exactly sure what's going on here, is to pray that God will give us what we need and help us to understand and to love his word. It'll speak to us by it. Anyone that, that I've read on this issue, what they've, all, what they've all come down on as sort of a bottom line, is that gifts of tongues and prophecy, however we might define them, are subordinated to the Bible that God has given to us once and for all. That they don't add to it, that if anything they help us connect to it more, or help us to uh, connect with God and love him more in our, in our own private devotion. But they aren't something that we can't do without, and sort of mi- that without them we, we are missing something essential about what God wants to communicate to us. I think the very fact that God says, you know, that, that Paul writes here in, in chapter 14 that some have these and not all have them, shows us that they aren't essential for, for living, for understanding what we need to from God. So I've made peace as a cautiously open-minded person when it comes to the miraculous gifts I don't really know what I think. Check with me next year. I'll probably feel differently than I do now. And I don't think that our church, by not having an official position on whether we seek these gifts, I don't think our church is missing anything. I think because we have the word of God, we have what we need. And we'll trust him to help us understand it and love it through his own means, by his grace. Um, happy to talk about this more after the fact, if you guys, are not, uh, if you guys have further questions. For now, what I want to do with the time that we have left is actually highlight the things in this chapter that are true for everyone who's ever read it, no matter what you think about tongues and prophecy. Because Paul's main point here is actually to put the gifts in perspective. He wants to rein in the gifts. Their, their, their uh, sort of elevation of these miraculous gifts is something he wants them not to, uh, is something he wants them not to prize so highly. He wants them to, to understand there are things that are more important than these gifts that you're latching on to. And particularly, he's pretty down on tongue speaking here. And, and, and wants them to elevate the gift of prophecy because of prophecy's value in the church. And what he does, the way that he argues here in this chapter, what I really want us to latch on to and come away with today, is I think he gives us a view of what we should be looking for when we come together as, to, to worship. The whole chapter is about what happens when you come together for public worship. And we want to understand what can, we can take away from that and, and try to put into practice here in our body when we gather on Sundays. What are these meetings about? What should be our goals and how should we try to get there? That's the, those are the questions I think Paul wants to, to help us with. They're the, the ongoing value of this chapter for our life today. That's where I want to drill down. I want to I I talk briefly about why we gather, which I think comes out in the first section here of chapter 14, about what we do when we gather, which comes out at this, in a central paragraph picking up in verse 13, and then, and then how we do what we do, which is that last section where he talks about order and about each sort of speaking and taking turns. Why we gather, what we do when we gather, and how we do what we do when we gather. All of this in the next 15 minutes. Here we go. Strap in. Why do we gather? I think Paul's main point at the outset here is that since love is our highest calling, starts there, pursue love. This is right on the heels of chapter 13. Since love is our highest calling, we ought to value and we ought to emphasize not those things that might make us look good or particularly powerful, but those things that are going to serve other people. If love is our primary calling, we want, to, we want to seek out and emphasize things that are going to do good to others, that are going to build them up. That's what separates tongues from prophecy for him in this chapter. 
A tongue, he argues, is understood only by God. That's verse 2. It isn't understood even by the speaker. Whatever psychological benefit it might, it might give to the person who's speaking, it's not understood by them. But the one who prophesies speaks to others who are there so that they'll be built up. And then he starts to unpack this idea in the rest of the verses of this, of this first section. He talks about how tongues, tongues, you know, uninterpreted, is, is just like babble. It's like a, a flute that isn't played well. Indistinct sounds. It's like a bugle that just makes noise but doesn't call, doesn't call anyone to battle. It, it's, it's at the very least useless. But at the worst, it can actually do harm to have these sort of indecipherable tongues going on in your services with no one there to tell you what it means. It could do harm because it can alienate you. I think that's his example of being a foreigner to the person who's speaking and then being a foreigner to you. And we know what it's like. If, if you've traveled internationally and you've been in airports internationally and you hear other languages going around all around you and you don't understand them, you know that feeling. One writer called it the, the sick feeling that one does not belong. The sick feeling that one does not belong. How alienating it can be to not be understood and to not understand. That's what Paul wants them to avoid at all costs. It's the payoff of, section, of 20, verses 20 to 25. That section where he talks about what happens if an unbeliever comes in. And he hears you guys talking like this and doesn't understand what you're doing. No one's there to interpret. It becomes a sign for him. That's a, a little bit of a strange phrase. It's not immediately obvious what it would mean for, it to, for tongues to be a sign for the unbeliever. But when he quotes from Isaiah, what it shows is that the sign, in this case, is a sign of judgment. It's a sign of God's judgment. When they come in, rather than hearing news about Jesus that they could respond to and, and receive, what they hear is something that makes them think Christians are crazy, that there's nothing to this claim that Christ is, is the Messiah. And so when they hear it, they're just driven away by it. They're driven further into judgment. Not, they're not drawn in. Whereas if you prophesy and they understand it, well, then their hearts are laid bare. They see themselves in a new way, and they worship and, and turn to Christ as their only hope. The point is, the difference between tongues and prophecy is that one of them is indecipherable, doesn't do anybody any good, and might actually do you harm. Whereas the other aims at helping the church grow, helping them to see what God wants from them, helping them to trust and believe in Him more than, more than they would otherwise. It's the image of, of well-applied truth from the promises of God to the details of our lives, of words that help us believe. I love verse 3 the way that it summarizes it. The prophet is somebody who speaks to people and he speaks to them for upbuilding, for encouragement, for consolation or comfort. Prophet is about taking care of others through the words that they speak. And that's what our gatherings are supposed to be about. One of the most important and most powerful confirmations of the truth of the gospel is, is when you experience connection with it in an unexpected way. When you're hearing the gospel, you're hearing someone teach about it or, or, or talk to you about it, and all of a sudden you just, it gets you in a way that you couldn't have prepared for. It just explains you, exposes you. It's a way of the Spirit uses it to prove to us that it's true. And, and having, facilitating those kinds of experiences, not demonstrations of power in a tongue, those experiences are the purpose for our coming together. And it holds true whether the gift of prophecy is still in effect or not. Paul's point here is that we have, we've got to aim to build each other up. Did you see how often that phrase comes up in this chapter? It's in verse 3. It's in verse 5. 
It's in verse 6. It's in verse 12. It's in verse 19. And it's in verse 26. It's all over. Our goal is to build each other up. We want to encourage each other, comfort each other, convict each other, lead each other to encounter and rest in God as a form of worship. That's why we come together. That's what these meetings are about. So I thought about calling this sermon, Why Your iPod Isn't Enough. (laughs) Because you know, from experience, you can listen to a far better sermon than you're hearing right now from the comfort of your iPod, from your earbuds, on a jog. You can listen to great music and enjoy singing it on your iPod. There's a certain kind of worship experience, in other words, that you can have in the privacy of your earbuds. But what you can't do on your iPod is build each other up. And this is where the crucial emphasis of Christian living comes into play. Because what we're called to is not just individual communion with God. We're called to help others commune with God. To help others trust in Him and rejoice because of Him. So what should you be looking for in a church experience? Not that all your tastes are reflected in the choices that are made about the style of the music or the demeanor of the preacher. Not that you had a particular connection to God or were taken to another place by what you experienced there. What you're looking for is not not the way that you are first and foremost served by the experience you have. What you're looking for, Paul's answer, is simple. Strive to excel in building up the church. Now this, this main underlying theme it has implications for how we do things here at Trinity that are really cast over all of the choices that are made about our services. It's one reason that we don't sing some songs that would be great for you to sing in the privacy of your home, for your own personal devotion. Songs that are very first person, that talk about you and your experience of God, how you're feeling about God at that particular time. Nothing wrong with those songs in the world. But to bring songs like that into our corporate worship is to narrow you in, to take you away from the people who are around you and sort of put you with a sort of tunnel vision onto God alone. And that just isn't the point of of what we do when we gather. What we do when we gather is we help point each other to God and to his promises, to remind each other that they're true, to try to help each other love them. So we sing songs that could be true for anybody, anywhere. Songs that focus on God and his character and his promises to us, that call to each other to respond to those in a way that that fits them. It affects how we sing. It affects the way that we, um, the, the way that we do and do not choose instruments and how they'll be played. We want everything, everything about experience here to encourage you to notice each other, to hear each other singing, to look around at each other and think of yourself as singing these promises to each other, not, not giving you the experience that you might have at a concert where it really is about a personal and individual communion with something bigger, something transcendent. The Christian life involves communion with God for sure. But when we come together, we come together for something else. We come to build each other up. So what do we do when we gather? This is another crucial point that has a lot of influence on us and our choices that we make here. 
this, this central paragraph in verses 13 to 19, Paul talks about the difference between tongues and prophecy as a difference between praying only or singing only with the Spirit and praying also, singing also with the mind. And he built, at the end of this paragraph, you notice, he builds to saying, I would rather speak five words with my mind than 10,000 words with a tongue. I think what he's saying here is that what we do when we gather is engage our, our hearts by focusing our minds. That the key to having your heart stirred up with affection for God and His promises is understanding who God is and what God has promised to do for us. So, Paul was out of step with much of the worship teaching of his time and certainly with much of the practice of our time. I think sometimes the heart and the mind get put into a comparison with each other where the, where the mind doesn't come out very good, right? Where the difference is between something that you just know in your head but don't get on a deeper level. And we all know there's some truth to that, right? We've all experienced from ourselves and in other people something where you, you know the right answers but you're not really moved at all by it. it, doesn't, it it's inauthentic. It, that, that's what we call a, hip, a hypocrite, right? It's somebody who says the right things, claims the right things, but doesn't, doesn't get it, doesn't do it or feel it. But there's a problem with, with putting the heart over against the mind in that way. One of the problems is that it, it tends to define the heart as simply a place where feelings come from, right? Just a way of feeling or a, a way of emoting. Whereas in the Bible, heart is much bigger than that. Heart is the inner person that includes thinking and feeling and willing and doing. It's, it's, it's who you are. It's, it's the, the, the contrast is not between the mind and the heart, but the body, sort of the physical decaying body and the real you who's on the inside. The other thing, that, the other problem with it is that we often, miss, we often miss that emotions can be stirred by any number of purposes. That we can have our hearts, if all, we, if all we're talking about is feelings here, we can be stirred up by, to feel in a certain way by a whole host of things. By just pick a movie. Um, and and in, that, in that moment, in that two-hour window, you can be connected to characters you never heard of before and won't ever think about, maybe won't ever think about again, but in that time, your heart is stirred up for them, right? Or, th- or think about some Eastern meditation practices where the goal is to affect you by clearing out your mind so that you can receive clarity and focus and so that you can stir yourself up in a different way, a detachment from, from the physical world or from the things that you know. Paul was writing at a time when... when um, when Greek philosophy and, and some of his Jewish brothers believed that inspiration by God was a sort of emptying of your own thoughts and just letting your mind go. And Paul is trying to rein that in. He's saying, no, the key to Christian worship that honors God is to take your mind and to fill it up with truth because what you want your heart aiming at is not random. It's something particular. You want your heart to be focused on and and running out to something concrete that's been done for you by God in Christ. So the key is to, is to sharpen your mind and to fill it, to target it on the things that are true, not to clear it out and let your heart take over, your feelings take over. Those two things go together in Paul's vision for worship when we gather. So what we do when we gather is we, we drill down on the things God has told us about himself and about what he's done. We try to fill our minds with that so that then our hearts are aimed not at something random. They aren't just aimed at at something that doesn't matter, but they're aimed at, at the only thing that, that can save us. 
They're aimed at God and His promises. I'm not denying that we need to rise above distractions, that we need to free ourselves from the enticements of of fleeting pleasures, right? The Bible is full of that kind of language. What we're saying is that the cure to distraction and to the enticement of fleeting pleasure is not an emptiness of mind, but a sharper focus of mind on the truth about God and His promises to us. I wish I had more time than I do to tell you, to explain and I highlight ways that this particular view of, of how we should be behaving when we gather influences the choices we make here. I wish I had more time because I'd love, I, we want to create buy-in. We want you guys to love that we do things the way that we do. They're on purpose. They're rooted in this passage. This is why we sing songs that have so many words, that have five verses in them, right? The one we just sang. <laughs> this is why we sing five-verse hymns. We want to target our we want to target our minds onto our hearts and, and move ourselves through truth. But I don't have time to preach that sermon, so some other time. The last thing on the outline, which I won't spend time on this morning, is how we do what we do when we gather. I just want to point you to it. Notice that Paul doesn't see anything out of step between the Spirit being active and powerful in their services and the fact that they plan what they're going to do. He's calling for them in that last paragraph to be ordered in their behavior, to, to structure things, to take turns. That doesn't squelch the spirit, it funnels it, it directs it, it makes sure that it's being used to build each other up. So order when we come together matters because God is a God of peace and not of confusion. And the other thing that matters in this text is that the best way to, get, to, to aim our minds so that our hearts are engaged is to do it together, to find outlets in our life together when we come together to hear from each other. He wants multiple people involved, not just one person. He wants the body to be benefiting from what they all bring to the table, from the perspectives the Spirit gives to them. That's one of the things that 1 Corinthians 12 is about. We all need each other, that each person in the body brings something that the body wouldn't have if they didn't bring it. So we've got we to be engaged with whatever it is we have to offer it to other people so that they're built up. In our, in our services, in our Sunday school, in our small groups, they're targeted at bringing the wisdom of the group to bear on, on all of us because that's what Paul values. That's how we do what we do best. Well, we haven't had nearly the time that we needed to unpack this chapter, but I'm, what I'll pray is that God, by His Spirit, will make these times together fruitful, productive, but ultimately He'll use them to help us to love Him and His promises. Because if the Spirit doesn't do it in the way that he describes here, it won't get done. So join me now. Let's pray together that God will speak to us and continue to be with us when we gather. Father, we know there's no magic formula that we can speak that will get your Spirit to be here and to be changing us. Uh, our, only, our only hope is that you've promised that you want to form us by our times together. That you want to use these times to help us to believe in you, to understand you to love you more than we do. And that's what we want our gatherings to be about. Not our personalities, not our own private experiences, but about building each other up. Help us to stay true to that. Help us to benefit from it and to see the beauty of it because you work. Because we can see evidence that you are doing what you promised that you would. Shape us by our times together so that we honor you with our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Spirit
living breath of God bring new life into my willing soul bring the presence of the risen Lord to renew my heart and make me whole cause your word to come alive in cannot see. Give me passion for your purity. Holy Spirit, breathe new life in me. offering. Uh, Parents invite you to go and get your children and head back quickly so you can join us for the benediction and for the last song together. Open our hearts, let us 
Amen. Friends, will you please stand now to receive the benediction? May the love of God, which is deep and wide, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is boundless and free, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that gives us gifts, that binds us together, and gives us joy, be with you as you go in peace. Amen. Mm-hmm.